Hi, everybody, and welcome to Paul Listnick Behind the Curtain here on WGN Radio in the podcast world. Uh, you know, oftentimes, as you know, in the podcast, I step away from the political side. I cover on television and talk about theater and the arts. Well, today, things sort of merge a bit uh, as we talk about a really fabulous new book that somebody should have thought of writing many years ago, I think. Uh, it's called Undelivered, The Never Heard Speeches That Would Have Rewritten History. It's by Jeff Nussbaum, who is a speechwriter himself, worked for Joe Biden, Al Gore, uh, and all sorts of politicians uh, based on his work. Jeff, good to see you. Thanks for joining me. It's great to be here with you, Paul. Thanks. I, I'll tell you, you were on our morning show and, and I saw that and I went, I've got to have you because, I mean, this is, I mean, politics is my world. And by the way, the book isn't just politics. You go into other areas. Uh, but I just so enjoyed it because people do raise the question, what if, what if a different speech had been given, a different line had been said? Yeah. One of the things that my publisher joked about is they said, look, there's some people who love counterfactual histories and some people who love history. And this is actually a rare book that gives people both. Um, you get the actual history that provides an early look at what, go, what would have happened if we went down some of these counterfactual paths, um, as, as you've seen and discussed, you know, airstrikes on Cuba during the Cuban Missile Crisis or, or D-Day fails. I mean, these are fascinating questions, but we get a little bit of a look at what the answer might have been. Yeah. And, 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 and you, you have those, I should say the book is not, I thought the book was going to be a series of, of speech texts going through and that's not what it is. And it's better that it's not. Uh, although you do give us some of that at the end, almost in an appendices sort of way, but where we get to see some things, but um, you know, the, one of the famous speeches I know that never got, got given, it's the one you kind of heard about was when, um, when we first went to the moon and the Apollo 11 astronauts, right. And a speech had been written by, you know, for Nixon had he had to explain the deaths of those astronauts. Exactly. And there's a reason I did not include that speech in the book, which is there's no evidence Nixon ever saw it. And, and there's no evidence that Nixon ever wrestled with that idea. Um, and so the, my bar for inclusion in the book was, did the leader actually look at this and wrestle with it? And if they wrestled with the idea and they saw the speech, that's what that's to me what merited inclusion. And for some reason, although this topic doesn't come until late in the book, you talk about from time to time you were on how to hell duty. And so I sort of think somehow that ties to me for the point you just made. Just that what, what was how to hell duty and how does that tie in here? Um, I love that you bring that up. That was an early lesson for me in speech writing. Um, I was I was a kid speechwriter. I was like 22 years old. I was writing for Al Gore, um, interning for Al Gore. And my job was to look at everywhere he was going and find out something about that town or the location that would help him connect with the people there. Who won the high school football game on Friday night? What's the railway crossing that holds people up in traffic for 45 minutes? And so, you know, you know someone said, oh, nothing much goes on in this town. Um, this is telling one of my colleagues. But we have this intersection called Malfunction Junction. That's all anyone talks about. So knowing he would be late, you know, Gore shows up and says, sorry, I'm late. I got hung up at Malfunction Junction. And the, the reaction is, how the hell did he know that? And so that was how the hell duty. I love that. And, and but the, the point of it is it makes it personal. It makes it, you know, you got to know where you, what you're talking about. And again, as you say, did the leader even see what it is that's going on? I also want to ask you, I know you've written for Biden, of course, for Al Gore, uh, but you've also been a part of a couple of groups, West Wing writers and the Cuban cabinet, and you've worked for all sorts of folks. So it would appear your leaning is Democrat based on the people you had real jobs with. And I'm sort of curious if you were hired to work for, you know, Trump, uh, or as an example, uh, or what, you know, would, is that part of, is sort of like a job as a job I'll write for whoever, or do you say, no, I've got to feel comfortable with who I'm working with. 
Now, there's something, you know, speechwriters can approach this like lawyers and they say, look, everyone needs a good defense. And a speechwriter could say everyone needs a good speech. That's not really how I've operated. And I will say that even though my political leanings are quite clear, the the book is is not really a political document. You sort of said, like each chapter, the speech itself is sort of a coda to the chapter. But for me, the fun was excavating the history. So the answer to the question is, yes, there are people who write for whoever's willing to cut them a check. That's not how I've approached the world. And in fact, you mentioned Trump. His secretary called me when it was time for him to do a humor speech because I I written and I write humor sometimes and said, um, would you be willing to help write this humor speech for this Al Smith dinner? Um, uh, in, in it's a big dinner in New York and each party. And he did that. I remember him yeah, doing that. And he, he did the speech, but the call came through to me as I was sitting, helping Hillary Clinton with her speech. So <laughs> I, um, I, I begged out of that one for many reasons. Um, but, but yeah, so, so the answer is you could do it, but I think, you do a better job if you're writing for someone or about something that even though it's not your voice, it aligns with your beliefs. Yeah. And I was always curious about that. I also was curious, but you answer this one at the beginning of the book, uh, which essentially is, you know, when, when did you start? Like I said, I've always thought about undelivered speeches and stuff. Never thought of putting a book together, but for you, it, it takes us back to 2000, right? It's the Al Gore, George Bush thing where there was a night you were part of it. There were three speeches Gore might have given. Exactly, exactly. So three versions. There was a victory, there was a concession. And then strangely enough, we thought Gore might win the electoral college, but lose the popular vote. And so, you know, there's some language basically saying, you know, this is why an electoral college win is still a win. Now Americans are very well acquainted with the idea that an electoral college win is still a win. But, but so from that night, and then I actually went and worked in the Senate. And in short order, we had, there was an evenly divided 50-50 Senate. And there was a party switch that put Democrats in control. And then there was September 11th. And then two weeks later, there were anthrax attacks. And then, you know, shortly after that, there was the, there was the Iraq war um, resolution. And all of those things might have been very different had Al Gore been president. And so I sort of got this early picture, not just of the undelivered speech, but, but the ways in which history really could have veered off quite differently with a, di- with, with a different outcome. And I, one of the things, I am going to be a little more organized in my, in my questions and discussion, but these things just are, were in my mind, they excited me. And so- No, this I is fun. Keep it. going. I'm, I, I like ripping with you, Paul. All right. I just want to get out of it. And, and that's the Hillary Clinton victory speech. Yeah. Because in 2016, she expected to give it, you're in on that world. And, um, and that speech never gets given. Um, what, what is it like when you're part of a speech, in that case, a victory speech, and it doesn't get given, but even being a speech writer, you know, other people that would have worked on that speech, what are they going through when in the end it's like, no, put that one away? Yeah, well, um, and I wasn't involved on, on Hillary's campaign, yeah, in, yeah, in Amy Fuller, but, but so in a way, there's almost the superstition that you write two speeches no matter what, even if you oh. really very clearly expect to do one. So the initial concession speech for Hillary was really more of a superstitious document, not very well thought out. And when it turned out she would have to concede, it's part of why they actually waited and did it the next day, because it just didn't feel sufficient to the sense of shock and grief her own supporters were feeling. And it didn't feel sufficient to the kind of campaign it had been. Ugly foreign interference, things of that nature. But but I do think, in a way, a lot of speechwriters will tell you 
they sort of sneak in their best speech for the unanticipated outcome because no one pays attention to it. And so it's a chance for sort of a speechwriter to kind of flex their muscles. You know, Bob Shrum, who's legendary in democratic circles, you know, wrote the Teddy Kennedy concession speech. And in a way, the concession put him on the map more more than any of the affirmative speeches he had written in his career. So, um, so yes, there's the emotional response because this thing you've devoted yourself to for a long time hasn't come to pass. And at the same time, since everyone is kind of in shock, the speechwriter is the one who kind of gets to steer the ship just for a little bit to say, all right, let's, let's bring this in for a dignified end. And of course, a lot of people would wonder, you know, how do you get access to these speeches? Of course, we've learned lately as a previous, you know, uh, last period of time when we're learning about documents in the White House that are getting destroyed or burned or flushed down a toilet. But the reality is one of the lessons we learned is, no, no, everything is meant to be kept for uh, the National Archives. And so a lot of these speeches that are never given, they exist because they're kept for posterity. Exactly. They exist. And, and, and in the course of writing the book, I had there were a lot of fun places where I sort of had to chase the breadcrumbs. In, in all different places. And, you know, an administrative assistant taps me on a shoulder and opens a filing cabinet and says, I think I have what you're looking for. <laughs> but in a lot of cases, these things existed in the archives and people just hadn't gone looking for them. In some cases, I when, when you know, some of this stuff, the stuff, the key players were still alive, um, you know, when I call them, it's almost like they're excited to unburden their souls. You know, they're like excited to share. Oh my God, you know, I had this thing for the mayor of Boston and I'm so glad he didn't do it, but I'm so glad you're asking about it because it was this amazing moment where he changed his mind, you know. So there's a lot of that stuff as well. But yes, I mean, archives are, are amazing. And I will say librarians are a gift. You know, these people who help you navigate the archives and find what you're looking for. And and all the speeches, this is not just presidential speeches. I mean, you've got one from an Academy Award ceremony we'll, we'll talk about. Uh, even Illinois has a, as a, a former uh, uh, governor, of uh, John Peter Altgeld. You have a speech. So it goes all over the place. That's why Yes. And by the way, I will say to your Illinois listeners, the Altgeld chapter is my is my favorite chapter. Um, and, and it's the most obscure one in a lot of ways. So this is uh, John Peter Altgeld loses the 1896 election in large part because he has pardoned the surviving Haymarket prisoners. They were immigrants. He was an immigrant. It unleashes this wave of anti-immigrant sentiment. And he basically is denied the chance to give his farewell address. And the farewell address, when you read it, feels so beautiful and relevant today. And, and I, if, you'll, if you'll indulge me, I'll just read one line from yeah. where he says, in my judgment, no epitaph can be written upon the tomb of a public man that will so surely win the contempt of the ages than to say of him that he held office all of his life and never did anything for humanity. And I just love Alkeld as this profile and courage who knew he was going to basically sign his, his political death warrant by doing this, but did it because, as he said to his administrative assistant, he put his fist down and said, it is right. I just love it. Let me put a button on that. Do you know where he's buried? Where is he buried? So I went to U of I. And oh, is he buried in Champagne? Altgeld Hall is there. Now, if this memory is wrong, I'm sure someone will correct yeah. me on this. But part of my fraternity duties was <laughs> being sent out late at night, and it was to find the grave of John Peter Altgeld. And it's actually not just not far outside Altgeld Hall under like a tree that's there. Um, and I'm, I think that it's either the grave or it's a marker, but I'm pretty sure it's the grave. And that's I, I, think, I, I think you're right. And one of the most... Um, 
beautiful speeches he did give right before he pardoned the prisoners was at the University of Illinois, where he basically explained his reasoning. And he had this beautiful line about letting the sunlight in and the poisons collected will dissipate. I mean, it was sort of pre, pre Brandeis, you know, yeah, something yeah. that is the best disinfectant. It's, it's, it's just wonderful stuff. Well, next time you're there, go see the grave. Go get some Papa Del's pizza. You'll be fine. Uh, <laughs> just just a few blocks. Well, it used to be across the street. Anyway, so here's the thing. The, the book is not organized. It's sort of like, here's the speeches of the 50s and the speeches of the 60s. I and mean, that's not, again, something else. I had these expectations. But instead, you sort of, you create six kinds, six, six categories uh, in which these speeches fall in. The, and so I want to walk through those. And these speeches sort of fit in within those categories. Your first one, you call words that are too hot. Um and that's how we get to, and you're probably reaching for the Martin Luther King and, and uh, 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 John Lewis speeches, uh, which again, you know, so fantastic. Who would have ever guessed that the, the most famous I Have a Dream speech? And by the way, John Lewis, I think a lot of people didn't even realize he was the force he was until he died. And we heard so much about the speech he gave at the March on Washington. But those weren't the speeches that were going to be given. Yeah. And this kind of part of why I led with this chapter was because one of my many jobs in politics has been to oversee speech writing at the democratic conventions where I joke that my job is to get yelled at by like 190 different (laughs) elected officials over the course of four days. No one is happy at a convention, right? And the March on Washington is basically a convention where everyone is nominally on the same page, but people have their own agendas. And John Lewis was, was young. He was the new leader of the student nonviolent coordinating committee, which is called SNCC. And he was like, he was sort of the fiery voice. He had been in the fight. He had been on the freedom rides. He'd been arrested at that point 20 times already. And so he kind of thought the march was a little too establishment. And and he said, I don't want this to be a march in Washington. I want it to be a march on Washington if I'm going to speak. And he didn't want to speak. And his folks convinced him to speak. And his first draft, when someone leaked a copy of it, was way too hot. And basically, the Archbishop of Washington, who was going to deliver the invocation, said, if this is the type of stuff that's going to be said at this march, I ain't doing it. And that was a big deal because it was the archbishop's blessing that kind of allowed President Kennedy to embrace the march. And we have to, and this so, is 1963. I mean, we've got to remember that time frame. Yeah, you got to remember the time frame. You got to remember that, that in, in retrospect, we see the march as this beautiful, peaceful, kumbaya moment. But the city was on edge. The baseball team had canceled their home games. Liquor licenses had been suspended. The National Guard had been called up. The, the Washington, then Washington Redskins quarterback was a member of the National Guard. And one reporter saw him surrounded by his fellow guardsmen and said, that's the most protection he's had all year. You know, I mean, it was, it, 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 the city was on edge. And, and the takeaway is, if, if Lewis gave the speech he wanted to give and King gave the speech that he kind of wanted to give, would people have walked away from that march not knowing about the dream, but only hearing about the nightmare? And, and by the way, Martin, and now I, it's been a while since I've read that chapter as I've read the whole book. I loved it. Um, am I right that, that Martin Luther King's speech, it wasn't, it, it wasn't even quite ready. He, he was there a little ad libbing at all. Yes, exactly right. King's advisors wanted him to give a, a kind of a tougher speech that they were calling normalcy never again. In other words, people say we can make some progress when we turn to normalcy. Uh-uh. There's going to be normalcy never again in this country. But King had been given, had given versions of the, I have a dream speech dozens of times leading up to the march. And so when he lapsed into, he was kind of, he described it later saying, worst thing as a speaker is circling around in a plane, not knowing where you're going to land. And sort of the speech didn't feel like it had had a landing place. And so he ad-libs 
the I have a dream peroration, right? The sort of pre-conclusion conclusion that he had done dozens of times before. And his, his advisors later interviewed, they kind of like smacked their hearts with their palms because they thought this feels like a warmed over greatest hits album. Yeah. And I love it as a, as a kind of a, a message, a, a messaging bit of advice, which is it's the thousandth time you say the exact same thing that people finally hear it. So King sort of altered his speech to a, a sort of softer version than he wanted to give. And John Lewis ultimately relented and, and edited his speech. And he edited, edited outlines where he had wanted to say things like, we will march through the South, through the heart of Dixie, the way Sherman did. We will pursue our own scorched earth policy and burn Jim Crow to the ground. And, and instead, right, he, he changes it to basically say, you know, we will march through the streets of the South, through Jackson, through Danville, through Cambridge, Maryland, through the streets of Birmingham, but we will march with the spirit of love and with the spirit of dignity that we have shown here today. That's a big tone change. It is. And you just think of the changes in history. That's, again, the beauty of this book, that what could have changed just in history with those changes? What if Martin Luther King had just said, you know, I took a nap the other day. I mean, you know, uh, wouldn't have had that same impact as I have a drink. Yeah. And and both, you know, King goes out and says normalcy never again. John Lewis goes out and says, we're going to burn Jim Crow to the ground. And John Kennedy says, you know what? I'm not going to invite these guys to the White House. And, you know, and we don't make the progress on the civil rights bill, right? right? Kennedy was sort of soft on that. So it it really, these little things could have made a difference. Absolutely. Next part is I just move us along. So we get a lot in here, change of mind, change of heart. Now there's a couple of speeches in here. We're not going to talk about just because I think people don't connect with them as much. One by Emma Goldman. And if you're not sure who she is, go see the musical ragtime. And uh, also, I love love that. Uh, And and Helen Keller. And uh, people do know who she is. It's just that this is where you talk about the Nixon resignation speech. And that's the one that I think those people who love history watching us right now or listening to us right now, that's the one they'll best connect with. Agreed. And part of this goes back to a very famous speech Nixon gave called Check the Checker Speech, yeah. where he was in political trouble. And we sort of think of Nixon now as kind of like a perennial five o'clock shadow, sort of like, you know, sneaky, evil looking guy. He was charming and persuasive. Checker is a dog, by the way, for people who don't know. Yes, exactly. Checker. It was basically where he was in trouble for accepting gifts. And he said, no, I didn't accept these gifts, but uh, there was one gift I did accept. It's this cute little dog checkers and I'm not giving it back. My kids love him and he's staying. Yeah. And people loved it and they loved it. And his thinking here was, can I pull this rabbit out of the hat again? Can I save myself by giving a really persuasive speech? Very honest. Basically says, look, I've reviewed the evidence. Doesn't look good. But he makes this argument that we later hear people like Rudy Giuliani making when he wanted to stay on as mayor in New York, which is basically... Times are so, it's, there's so much upheaval. Shouldn't I keep providing the consistency I provide? So, you know, there are people who don't want to give up power. Powerful stuff. Of course, he reinvented himself as well. You have a section called Crisis, Crisis Averted. And here you've got the Edward VIII uh, refusal to abdicate. I think that's worth mentioning just because everybody kind of remembers when he gave it up. So what we don't know is about the refusal to abdicate. Exactly. He really didn't want to, for a while, give up the crown. Why would he? And, and he was, and, well, we should remind people just again, well, yeah. this was because of his marriage to Wallace Simpson. Exactly. He wanted to marry a woman named Wallace Simpson, who'd been twice divorced, was not seen as a suitable wife. And he was sort of forced by the prime minister and the country, choose one, the, the crown or, or the woman you love. Something, by the way, Harry has had to deal with in his own ways recently. Yeah. 
Yeah, and chose similarly. In the case of Edward, it's really interesting because the person helping him try to persuade people that he should stay on the throne, and the fingerprints are a little a little smudged here, was Winston Churchill, who was out of power at the time and thought by being a staunch royalist, he could sort of ride the king back into power. The irony being, had the king been successful in staying on the throne, he was more than a Nazi sympathizer. I mean, he was a Nazi promoter. And you could have had at the dawn of World War II, um, Britain having basically a Nazi sympathizing king. And what would that have meant for, for world history? So it's, it's all very interesting. And people who watch the show, The Crown, remember that episode a little bit. But the, but the real story behind it is even more dramatic because oh, yeah. it, gets to the, it gets to the point where um, basically the prime minister calls the head of the BBC and says, if the king shows up and wants to get on the radio and give a speech, don't let him in. And so, I mean, People who love history, when we get to the section called Fog of War, Path to Peace, man, that is an incredible section to look at because, you know, everything from, we can't talk about all these, but Ike's D-Day apology, Emperor Hirohito's apology, maybe the focus should be JFK, uh, who planned on giving a speech potentially about destroying missiles in Cuba that we, we never destroyed, it never happened. Yeah. So this chapter, I think you pointed out, right? Like it's people ask like, which would have been the world changing chapters? Yeah, this is it. These ones, right? Eisenhower, apology for the failure of D-Day has a wonderful example of the language of leadership because he initially wrote, writes, the troops have been withdrawn, crosses it out and says, I have made the decision to withdraw the troops. It was mine alone underlines it. Leaders take responsibility. And then uh, Hirohito, if he, if he had apologized, he wanted, he would have had to abdicate. Um, and we wouldn't let him do it. We wanted his seal of approval on the occupation. And then the airstrikes on Cuba. This is the height of the Cuban Missile Crisis. Kennedy has to choose a course of action, and one of the courses and, and one of the courses of action available to him is airstrikes on Cuba. But we didn't know the missiles were already operational in many cases. And and there's a, a basically a parentheses in the speech um, that says follows a description of first reports of action basically means we're going to fill in the blanks once we launch these airstrikes about what happened. But what we didn't know in retrospect is what could have happened is already operational nuclear missiles vaporizing our basic Guantanamo, vaporizing half of the Eastern seaboard. I mean, in that parentheses could have been, you know, humanity's suicide. It's unbelievable. And it makes me think, you know, one of the other things that triggers sort of my love of this alternative history. And I'm sure you've seen it. It's a book in an Amazon series, The Man in the White Castle, and it raises the question, what if we had lost the war and we were being governed by Germany and Japan? You know, it's just something people never think about that. You have to take a step back. And these speeches are really made me think about that. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. You have a, a next section we're going to, I'm just going to mention is called the people choose. And that's where the Hillary victory comes up. Um, and all sorts of electoral issues comes up. You might have to write a volume two of this book after the 2024 election. We'll see we what happens. See. But, but, but I do want to spend time with the sixth and final category, events intervene. And here we get Condi Rice and a speech she was supposed to be to be to have given on September 11th makes me think of the speech Kennedy was to given uh, on the day he was assassinated. I mean, these events intervene concept. So very important. Yes. Yeah, so September 11th, that was one. Ch- and that speech that she was going to give is still classified. So I was able to, through a Freedom of Information Act request, get all the materials she was assembling. So I got a sense and someone leaked me a couple of lines from the speech, um, but I got a sense of what the focus was, and it was really about missile defense. And it was rebutting the arguments 
of a certain senator who was the chairman of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee at the time named Joe Biden. So you see these materials that they're putting together to basically say why Joe Biden is wrong on missile defense. So it's, it's, it's fa- that was fascinating for me because seeing how they put the speech together made perfect sense because it's how I would have put a speech together if I was doing that sort of thing. And, and then, of course, the key event that intervenes, and this is why I made it the last chapter, was when people died before they were able to give their final speech. Right. And, and this has Pope Pius XI, John F. Kennedy, Albert Einstein, uh, and FDR. And, and one of the things um, that was coincidental, but I found very powerful in this chapter is across different nationalities and, and time, place, um, all of them in their own way were talking about what does it take for us to live in peace with each other? What does it take to, to coexist as humans? You also raise questions about speeches that I'm not sure this one was ever written, but you talk about Reagan. You know, I, I interviewed Karen Tumulty a, a while back on her Nancy Reagan uh, biography for, for the podcast. And uh, you wrote about, you know, did Reagan have uh, an AIDS speech? Is it somewhere else? Because that was probably one of the worst parts of his presidency, how that got handled. Yeah. And one of the hopes for me was that simply the publication of this book would bring some speeches out of the woodwork um, because you don't know where all these things are until you go looking for them or someone shares them. And so ironically, like the day after the book was published, one of the Donald Rumsfeld speechwriters reached out to me and said, remember in the early days of Iraq when, when Rumsfeld talked about known knowns, and unknown unknowns, well, believe it or not, he had us prepare several speeches for several potential outcomes in Iraq. So already some of these things are starting to uh, come out of the woodwork. Like um, I said, could be, a, could be a volume two on the way. So, or, or maybe from, from, from your lips to God's ears. I, I would love it. Um, you know, do you, you also had this really magic moment. I never knew about it. I've seen the old videotapes, just a little kid when Kennedy was, uh, was inaugurated. But of course, Robert Frost, the old famous poet, I think poet laureate, uh, if I am right, uh, was at the JFK inauguration. And he was uh, basically said, look, either write a speech, Bob, or read the gift outright. And then something strange happened. Yeah, so he had composed an original poem for Kennedy. He, he, but he was in his 80s at the time. And it was, it was very cold. And there was sort of glaring sunshine. And so he was struggling to read the poem that he had written. Uh, he just couldn't get through it. And he hadn't, he, he, did, he hadn't committed it to memory. Um, and by the way, I always tell speakers, don't try to memorize. Don't try to memorize. Just, just read, but read practice, but read well. And so struggling as he was, he, um, he knew he knew the gift outright by heart. And so he lapsed into that. Um, and he changed a couple words to sort of make it more Kennedy-esque. Um, but only later did he publish um, the poem, which I believe is officially titled for John Kennedy on his inauguration. Um, uh, yes. But, but, but he, didn't, he did not ultimately get to deliver it at Kennedy's inauguration. But you have to, you know, the, um, think of the pressure at the moment. I guess this is pre-teleprompter, I suppose, right? 1960. Um, yes. But imagine the moment of, of literally, you know, the world is watching you. You're, you're, you're resorting to the speech you know, but you're not quite remembering every line and having to do a little modification ad living on the spot. I, you know, I, I don't know many politicians that would handle that very well. No, I mean, it's really, I mean, you have millions of people watching. It's, it's, really, it's really very, you know, it's, these are intimidating kind of heart-stopping moments. And so I, I, I 
but I pulled in the introduction and thank you for raising it. You're the first person I've talked to who's, who's mentioned this part of the introduction um, in the poem that ultimately Frost wasn't able to deliver, but published later, I think describes perfectly what I was trying to do with this book where he says, New order of the ages did we say, if it looks none too orderly today, tis a confusion it was ours to start, so in it have to take courageous part. And I, and I just love this idea of people who have taken courageous part in world events and done what they can to help shape them. Oh, yeah. So beautiful. And by the way, I mean, before we, we, we run out of time, I want people to know. So here we are. We're talking about these political moments and historical moments. But you can go to the Academy Academy Awards and have a moment, too. And for those of us who watched La La Land get announced as the movie of the year, best Oscar, whatever it was of the year, only to have somebody walk out and go, wrong, Moonlight, it's you. And your whole point was that the folks from Moonlight had an amazing speech written that nobody cared about by the time they got to it. Exactly. And they were upset in reflecting. This is Barry Jenkins, who would have would have been doing the talking, just a tremendous storyteller. And um, right, I, I joke, right, there was a time when we, in the Academy Awards, we weren't talking about who Will Smith slapped. You know, we were right. talking about this. We're talking about this flub. And this flub, you know, in the grand scheme of world events, does it change much? Not really. But I, but I use that chapter. In every chapter, I also pull back the curtain and say a little bit about what the speech says about speech writing. And in this Barry Jenkins chapter, the Academy Award chapter, I talk about the power of story. And this, because Jenkins is a masterful storyteller. And the st- story he wanted to tell is why Moonlight mattered, why it matters for people to see themselves. And he was going to tell this incredible story of, of filming in, in this housing project in Miami, where he, where he grew up, where, you know, when the lights, the street lights blow out, no one changes the bulbs. But to film, he had to bring in lights. And bringing in the lights brought out the children. And he said they were constantly running through the sets and causing trouble. But at one point, he looked over, and there was a kid, young child, black child, in his director's chair, you know, with the headphones on. And, and Jenkins said that moment I, I saw in this child, I saw them seeing in themselves something I had never really allowed myself to see in myself. And it was just, it just would have been a beautiful moment about why stories matter, why seeing ourselves in the story matters. And that's part of why in this book, I tried to bring in voices that you don't often hear, right? The Emma Goldman's, the Helen Keller's, you know, voices of color, Native American leader who was denied the chance to tell, give the speech he wanted to give on the anniversary of the Pilgrim's Landing. You know, I'm trying to resurrect not just these crazy historic events that could have gone in a different direction, but in some cases, voices that were silenced. And, you know, I think the reason this book is so good is because, and tell me if I'm wrong, but I, you're, you're, you're not a historian uh, and you're not an archivist. And then, so you didn't write a book that we're going to read in speeches 101. I mean, you could, but the whole point of it is you're a writer and you understand the notion of storytelling and drama. And that's why this book is so effective because to be honest, had you been a historian who wrote the next book that you know, it just wouldn't have worked as well. Well, I'm a sucker for flattery, so thank you. But, but, I, but I do agree that there's something to this. When you're writing a speech or reading a speech, I always tell people I'm working with or working for, like, if you're getting bored reading the speech, then your audience is definitely getting bored. Right. And so as I was writing this book, I was, I was very attentive to the idea that if I am boring myself with the chapters, I'm boring the reader. But if I am excited 
to, to like, if I'm, if my pen is running away from me, right. If I'm typing fast, cause I'm excited to tell the next part of the story, then that's going to translate. And I've been so amazingly gratified. There, there've been some really lovely reviews. People have said things like you've said, and it just, it, it, it means the world to me. So I'm glad to hear you say it. By the way, out of curiosity, and I, 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 have you ever written a line that you would hope would be an applause? You know, when I graduated high school in 1976, I gave the graduation speech and my opening line was, we are the spirit of 76. And damn, if I didn't stand there until that audience figured out they were supposed to applaud. <laughs> yeah, right. You can, uh, right. You can milk it a little bit. Um, <laughs> there are, I, 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 I subscribe to the belief that like the speech belongs to the speaker. And there are times when it's hard for me to even watch a speech that I've helped write because I hear it differently in my head and, and they read it differently. And sometimes, you know, some of my clients have been professional actors and like an actor reads your speech and you go, oh, man, that's that's why they do what they do. Um, so, yeah, there are lines. Sometimes you expect them to land in a certain way and they don't. And there are lines that sometimes you don't expect them to carry so much emotional resonance and they do. And yeah. so, you know, and I'll just give you one. 10 second story, which is in 2004, I was overseeing speech writing at the Democratic National Convention. And I looked at that draft that put then state Senator Obama on the map that electrified the room that launched his political career. I looked at it on paper. I thought a solid speech. So it goes to show what I know. But, you know, the, the moment and, and the words match up and sometimes there's this real magic. And he became Barack Obama. The book is Undelivered, The Never Heard Speeches That Would Have Rewritten History. Jeff Nussbaum, congratulations on a fantastic book. I just loved it, and, and I really do look forward to a volume two. Well, so great to talk. Thank you for taking the Thank time. Thank you so much. It. Well, if you want to know more about what we've talked about here, follow me on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, at Paul Lisnick. That's P-A-U-L-L-I-S-N-E-K. And I'd love to hear your comments or topic suggestions for future podcasts. You can also go to my website, paullisnick.tv and hey don't forget to hit subscribe on WGN Plus and iTunes and tune in each week to hear more insider scoop coming to you from behind the curtain